I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That is the music of The Ocean Blue, which features my guest today on the program, David Schlazel. Let me tell you a little bit about David Schlazel and The Ocean Blue. But before I do that, let me tell you a little bit about Queen and The Beatles and Led Zeppelin. Where am I going with this? Well, let me try to get there. Stay with me. When I was a kid and I listened to bands like the ones I just named, I never really thought about how old the members of the band were. Freddie Mercury, Robert Plant, John Lennon, those people didn't seem like they actually had ages at all. They seemed like, I don't know, like they were operating somehow out of time, like they didn't have birthdays like the rest of us because they were, I don't know, like they were kind of like deities to me, and deities don't age. So with all the music I listened to, I knew those people were older than me. But I also felt like they were older than me because they were immortal. (laughs) They were like the modern-day immortals. They were the gods. They were the rock gods. They didn't seem to me to be people who blew out candles on cakes. Okay, so what does this have to do with the ocean blue? Well, quite a bit, it turns out. Let me explain. By the time I got to college, I was listening to bands like The Jazz Butcher, The Stone Roses, The Laws, uh, R.E.M., Love Tractor, and the same thing was happening. I didn't think of those people in those bands as people who had any kind of, I don't know, birth date on their driver's licenses. They were ageless. Yeah, even at 19 years old, I was still thinking that there were rock gods. They just didn't seem like normal people. Then I got an album by The Ocean Blue. The Ocean Blue was a band from Hershey, Pennsylvania. But by all appearances, they were British. They were on Sire Records, they looked British, they sounded British, but they weren't British. And guess what else they weren't? Old. That's right. They were my age. And that blew my mind. That was more mind-blowing than finding out they weren't from the UK. That they weren't potential deities with ageless origins. They were real people, and they were my age. That was the first time that it ever happened to me. And it was a weird moment. And it was a cool moment. Because I always thought that if you were going to be a rock star, you had to be someone from some kind of weird, angelic appellation. You were like some kind of, uh, I don't know, 
divinely christened being. But these were just guys from Pennsylvania who were 19 years old, just like I was. And suddenly it occurred to me, and you know, I'm sure it occurred to other people much earlier, what can I say, I'm a late bloomer, but it occurred to me that people my age could get record deals, which also meant people my age could be famous, which also meant suddenly all these things in the world that seemed impossible to me, that seemed untouchable to me, well, now suddenly everything felt possible. So if you're wondering how these Pennsylvania lads who grew up listening to the Smiths and Echo and the Bunnymen somehow ended up being label mates with their heroes before they turned 19, well, that's a fair thing to be wondering about. And the story goes a little something like this. The members of the Ocean Blue met when they were in middle school, and a few years later they put out a demo when they were in high school. A few songs from that demo ended up on a radio station compilation that circulated in the industry and got them a little bit of buzz. Meanwhile, the band was sending their work all over. One thing led to the next, and Sire Records became an enthusiastic suitor. Their senior year of high school, which is normally a time where people like you and I were worried about who we were taking to the prom, the Ocean Blue were signing a three-record deal with a Warner Brothers subsidiary, and they were headed to London to record their first album. A year later, that album came out. It was a self-titled effort, and the first single, Between Something and Nothing, went number one on the modern rock charts. They were all over MTV. They toured with the Mighty Lemon Drops, and they sold almost 200,000 records. The band quickly backed that up with two more records, 1991's Cerulean and 1993's Beneath the Rhythm and the Sound. Next came an EP, a live album, a contribution to the Eric Stoltz film Naked in New York, and the Ocean Blue were remaining a very busy band. A few personnel changes along with a record company change was where they found themselves in 1996, and as a result, their debut for Mercury Records, See the Ocean Blue, was a darker and more driving effort. Now, the relationship with Mercury only lasted for one album, and three years later, the band signed with an indie and put out their fifth record, Davy Jones' Locker. Yes, the nautical theme ran deep. A few EPs followed, but the Ocean Blue wouldn't put out another full-length album for almost 15 years. When they finally did, it was in 2013, and the album was called Ultramarine. Six years later, here in 2019, comes album number seven, Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves. Filled with shimmering guitars, brooding bass lines, and melodic choruses that sound as mighty as ever, the Ocean Blue are back. Well, back-ish. A lot happened in that 15-year absence, and I'll let David tell you all about that. But let's just say this for now. Being in a band is a full-time job, especially if you have another full-time job. Oh, you'll see. Here's my chat with David Shelzel of The Ocean Blue. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I mean, I'm the same person I was when I was a teenager making that record you were talking about. Um, but I'm also a very different person. You know, just like you were saying, we're both kind of middle-aged now. And when we started really getting into music, we were, were teenagers, even younger. And um, so all throughout my life, I've been thinking about making 
creating music. Um, and it's reflective of, you know, what I'm thinking, what I find interesting, things I'm going through. Um, the, yeah, reflective of who I am as a person. And so I guess your question was like, are we as, or am I creative as I was then? Um, probably, but in a different way, because I'm a different, I'm an older person, you know, and the things I'm thinking about experiencing going through are different. And then I also have this benefit of looking back over the arc of my life and the band's existence. And, you know, another way to answer your question is, um, you know, we're, we're the same as a band too. I don't think we can stray too far from the kind of fundamental DNA of the ocean blue, which is defined by the bands I fell in love with the artists I fell in love with as, as a young, young person. Do you think in terms of when you have the benefit of looking back at, at the past work and this show is really all about what's happening right now, currently, you know, what, what is the current creative moment doing to you? Um, are are you surprised, um, at, you know, at how focused you were so young? Because to me that, that's what's so remarkable is to have that vision to be so complete, so young. (laughs) You know, the funny thing is we didn't think about it. We just did it. And so the things that we were excited about, we just, I mean, we were completely naive. We just ran headlong into them and didn't know any better. And I think that played to our advantage. I mean, now as, as a, as an older person, I look back and say, Oh my God, you know, how did we do it? We were so fortunate. We were so driven, but at the time it was all natural. It was all organic. We didn't have any grand plan or, you know, yeah, it, it was pretty, it just kind of happened. And at the same time, there there also was a moment for you where you realized that this is not something that, you know, there, there are gaps, you know, you know, big gaps between, between some records. Um, so there mm-hmm, must've been a, mm-hmm. a, a very conscious decision for you to step away, to do something else as well, um, to, you know, yeah. to sort of pave your future. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I always think like, you know, I know obviously you, you must have loved Echo and the Bunnymen and you must have loved the Chameleons and those bands are still, you know, touring and still full full timing it on the road because that is the retirement plan. So, you know, like they, <laughs> yeah. didn't, they didn't think ahead, you know, past that. And I wonder there must have come a moment where you did think past that consciously. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, it is, it is a funny thing that a lot of the bands I love, like you mentioned Echo and the Bunnymen or New Order is another one. I mean, there, there are many bands that I loved growing up that are back out and touring again. And I, I'm very ambivalent about that. I mean, I, I, I don't run away from our past. I love the records we've done. I love the fans that have been with us since the very beginning. But I don't, I don't want to just kind of do a nostalgia tour or like, you know, be on the 80s night at some club on a Tuesday. I mean, I want to, I'm interested in making music now that, that falls within the stream of what we're, we're doing. But your question about was stepping away. And yeah, so when I, around the time I was turning 30 and, um, and we had done four, I guess, major label records. Right in the kind of late nineties, the record business was falling apart. 
um, at least the major label record business. And, you know, we, we had done well as a band, but not well enough to just kind of retire and not worry about things. And I had always had this sort of idea that when I turned 30, I was going to get out of music anyways. It was seemed like age 30 at the time seemed to me like, oh, I was going to be an old guy. I should move on. I should go to graduate school, you know, think about other things that interested me. And I was always interested in other things. I mean, I've never been a sort of like, all I do is music kind of guy. Um, I, I, I've always gone to school in between making records and touring. I went to college, took basically any class that interested me. And I got my undergraduate done over probably six or seven years. And then when I turned 30, I thought, well, you know, our, our record, the record business is falling apart. The kind of music I make is not really very popular right now with much louder. And I mean, that was when the sort of, you know, music really changed in the, started in the early 90s, but by, by the mid and late 90s, I mean, the kind of music we made was not uh, really very popular. And so all that stuff just kind of added up to me to go, go to grad school. And so, so I did that and uh, I went to law school, actually became a lawyer um, and I, I still do that. It's funny you sort of very casually say I went to law school and became a lawyer. You you are a very you're a guy who really has a terrific work ethic, and I think that's very clear. Um, but you also are somebody who read, uh, you kind of read the green really well. I mean, because some some people didn't see the music industry as falling apart as seriously as it as it really was. Um, so I, mm -hmm. I really have to credit mm -hmm. you for for having a, a good level head about that because being you know being in a band is intoxicating and um for the right reasons and the wrong reasons right it, it, it yeah you know it's funny to say that it is but it's also crazy it's absolutely crazy at least for a guy like me who's an introvert and um there are things i loved about being in a band and i still do and then there are things that drive me absolutely crazy that i don't like um and so you know it's great to be in a band that's successful, that's selling millions of records. And, but, but there's also things about that, that, that make you insane too. I mean, fame, um, and I'm not talking about myself, but people I know or, who are clients who are really famous. I mean, that comes at a price and, um, and it can really mess you up. So I don't know. I've always, I've always had a kind of a, a love hate or ambivalent relationship with being in a band um, I love making music. There's nothing I love more um, making records. And, and I, I like doing shows in measured doses, um, but, but it's not, it's not all great stuff. That's for sure. I imagine that you must've had a very supportive family growing up. I did. I came from a, I mean, from a very healthy family where I was loved and encouraged to do and try lots of different things. Uh, my father specifically encouraged me to continue to go to school when I was, you know, I got a record deal when I was a teenager right. and um, with, with a major label and it was a really good deal and could have easily said, ah, I'm not going to go to college. I'm not going to, you know, think about my future in any way. So my dad, who was, who was a really bright guy, was a PhD, you know, he, he, he encouraged me to continue to go to school and he said, you know, you might not want to do music the way you're doing it now when you're older and and um and and i just think that that's i think you miss out on life if you narrowly focus on one thing or at least i, I feel that way i you 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 can't make your life 
if you do make your life about one thing, if that one thing kind of goes sideways, you're going to be stuck. And I'm not just talking about like a, you know, career standpoint, but I think, you know, going to school made me a better musician. It made me more balanced. It made me understand the world better. And being a musician, particularly touring, also made me a better student, makes me a better lawyer now. Um, so I kind of, I, I think having a diverse life, having lots of different interests, um, or at least not narrowing it to one thing as a musician is a healthy thing. And as a young man, being introspective, growing up with you know all those great sire records that that you and I had listening mm-hmm. growing up, um, you were you a guy who spent a lot of time in his room, sort of crafting the vision artistically that that finally came in in the version of the Ocean Blue. <laughs> yeah, I guess I probably was that guy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I I don't want to paint a picture like that. That it was entirely me because I had I had a group of friends who were with me in in that um, and we spent a lot of time like in Steve or Bobby's basement you know thrashing out those songs and eventually starting to play some shows and um, you know where we grew up though there wasn't a lot of opportunities for us to like go see music um, there wasn't an event I mean we were all underage anyways but you know it wasn't like Echo and the Bunnymen or the Smiths when they were on tour came through town. Uh, you know, it wasn't a San Francisco kind of a place. Um, so, so yeah, it, it was really about discovering music. I mean, MTV, frankly, was kind of a big thing. The, eventually, the, the college radio that we could pull in from Lancaster and Philadelphia became a thing. And then beginning to travel a little bit more with the band and and see more in the early days or something too. Did you? I imagine that that maybe you're like me. I'm from San Francisco, and and listening to you know those bands early on, I had a kind of romance with the idea of, say, for example, the UK. When you finally got over there, did the romance match up with the reality? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, in <laughs> some ways, yeah. In some ways, no. Um, you know, I had been to the UK a couple of times. My uh, the side of my family has roots there. Um, but the the experience of making our first record there was was an eye-opener. And some of it was super cool. And some of it was uh, not disillusioning, but, you know, not maybe the romantic thing that I thought it would be. Um, certainly to work with a producer like John Porter and Mark Opitz on that first record in England uh, was pretty dreamy stuff. Um and uh, but it was also challenging. I was not and remain not a very good singer, so doing vocals is, is challenging. Um, even playing guitar, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a, a Johnny Marr, although he's a hero. So, so you know, all that stuff was a lot of work. Uh, but the experience of being in London was, was super cool, and um, for the most part, yeah, pretty dreamy. I, I imagine you have children, I do. And do you see a similar work ethic in, in your kids that you, that you had yourself? Well, um, you know, parenthood is a tricky thing and kids, uh, like you and I, I mean, we go through seasons of life where, where we have, where I think we are more or less like our parents. Um, I, I have, I have not, my kids are great. I don't like to talk about them too much because I like them to be their own, have the freedom to be their own people and sure. completely outside the shadow of their father. And 
and I'm super proud of what both of them are doing. And I, I think, um, I think there are things that they have learned from, from me that, uh, that they've incorporated into who they are and, and things that they've for good reason wanted to avoid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just imagine that you had a really good template for parenthood. Um, because again, it sounds like, you know, your parents are incredibly supportive. Uh, you know, it, it, yeah. it would be terrifying if you have like a teenager who signs a record deal and goes to the UK. So I just imagine that you, Oh that my you, gosh. Right. Yeah. That absolutely. And I, I think on one level, I mean, my parents told me in later years how, you know, how concerned they were about different things. And a lot of it was just like, you know, your teenager traveling to nightclubs in New York city, you know, I, it, then like having a record deal, record deal was, I think pretty exciting for my mother in particular, but um, yeah, no, I, and I totally get that more than ever as an older person. Um, but I think every parent wants their kids to find something that they love and that they're good at. And um, so, so that, that's tremendously happy. And, 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 and to be the kind of person uh, you know, have a kind of character qualities that make for a happy life and, and a good person. You know, communication is such an important thing. And I, and I don't think it really matters what your kid wants to do. If they're into it, then then that's the thing they should do. Yeah. And my, yeah. And I had a long talk with a friend about this recently. I, I think that's a big part of it. But he pointed out, like, you also want your kids to find something they're good at, like, I've got some friends that love music and they would give their entire life to music, but you know, the kind of music they make just maybe isn't the kind of music that people would actually, you know, they would, they would have a big following or, or, you know, somebody wants to be a computer programmer, but they don't really know anything about mathematics or, or logic and how to code. So they, you probably want to steer them to something else that they love and they're good at. Right. <laughs> so, um, and I think it's particularly true for people that love art and music because, um, you know, I'm super lucky that people care about the music I make, you know, it, that, that is, I, I realize like what a huge blessing that is. I know lots of people who make great music, music that I think is better than the music that I make, but you know, for one reason or another, people don't pay attention to it. And, um, the universe is strange that way. Um, there's not necessarily a correlation between people that are really good at something and the attention that they deserve. So sublime, it hits you like waves that crash on your face. It knocks you like wind in a storm on the sea.
I noticed that a lot of punk rock bands, there was always the guy, one of the guys in the back of the van who was getting secretly getting his PhD. Um, <laughs> and so you have a lot of these sort of punk rock professors. Um, I'm a professor myself. And so I, and so I know in academia that a lot of former punk rockers are, are now, um, you know, lecturers at prominent colleges. It's kind of funny, but I like the idea that you, you did not just say, this is the ocean blue and this is going to be it. And I'll, I'll bartend my way through my fifties to keep the band going. I'm glad that you had that, that vision to sort of diversify and, in many ways, I know this is going to sound very dramatic, David, but in many ways also protect yourself because rock and roll is not a safe place to for, your, for our dotage. Oh, man, no. You're absolutely right. It's not. I think there's so many, and, and it depends on your personality type and the type of, you know, type of person you are. I think rock and roll can be a, a terrible, terrible career, if you will, for people um, who are who have certain vulnerabilities or proclivities that, not a healthy life um for others it's absolutely what they should be doing um and they they become more of a a whole person by doing it so yeah (laughs) but but from a like a career standpoint absolutely not safe no like i look i mean i I know i've mentioned echo and the bunnymen a couple times i think we both love them i think it's safe to say that but i and i'm so happy they're touring but i'm also worried that they're touring yeah me too me too i i yeah I, I, I love those guys and I love, yeah, but you know, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, you know, it, yeah. it's like, I, I love them and, and they sound cool and I'm happy, but I also think to myself, like, you know, there's that famous quote about, you know, you don't retire from rock and roll. It retires you. And I, and I just, I wonder yeah. what the end game is for a lot of those bands because they're not Led Zeppelin. They can't just sit back in a mansion and watch the money come in. And I don't know if, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, there's a level of emotional maturity, and, and I know that sometimes where you get famous, it stops. Um, and, yeah. I, and I wonder sometimes yeah. if those bands like Echo or whoever, like they didn't really see the writing on the wall the way that you did. And, and I, yeah, that, that worries me just as a fan. Well, you know, first of all, Echo and the Bunnymen worldwide, you know, many factors more popular than my band. But I, I think, yeah, it is, it is hard to know. And I, I think um, I I think about that a lot. Like, at what point should I really stop doing music, or at least releasing records and touring? And it's a hard question. I think it's a dialogue that I'll be having at least till I die. Um, at one time, I thought it was age thirty. Um, you know, I'm older than that now, and I'm still doing it. And I, I think for me, as long as I feel like I'm doing something that feels good and write to me and I can actually like on a practical level, do it um, healthy enough. And there's people that show up, people that buy the record or, or listen to it. Then, then it kind of makes sense to me, but I don't want to have to depend on my music for a livelihood. I haven't for a long time. And that's, there's a certain freedom that comes with that. And uh, we do a lot of things in a really, um, stupid way from from like a career standpoint um and, but it's a way that really works for us like we've got a tour coming up right the smart thing to do would be to like take three months and do you know a bunch of dates back to back get a bus drive around we don't we do a couple shows at a time and we fly to them and <laughs> you know we uh it's a very 
yeah, it's a very different, but for us, it's been a really refreshing way to, to play shows. And don't you feel that were things different? Were you relying solely on the ocean blue for your income? I imagine that it, that it would be very tense. And this way your, your creativity is, you can be almost freer. I imagine it's kind of a relief to be able to create in this space. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's the positive side of things. Um, it's, it's less stressful. You have complete creative freedom. The, the flip side of that, that I've learned over the last kind of maybe particularly 10 years making the last two records is there, there are, there's no, with no constraints, it's hard to maintain discipline. Mm. You know, we don't have a major label that's saying, Hey, you're, you're slated for Q1 2020. We need a record delivered now. You don't have an A&R person kind of working with you, giving you feedback. You don't have a product manager that's setting up a, you know, marketing campaign. You don't have a personal manager that's working with the agents on the tour. You know, all this sort of structure that, I mean, deadlines are good, right? You know this being a professor. You get the paper done because it's due next Monday. That's right. You study, study for the exam because it's 3 o'clock on Friday. So you know what you're doing this week and you, you plot things out when, you know, I thought we were going to re release this new record last year, but life happened for me in a couple of ways. And it, we had to push it until this year that no one really cared. Um, but it just means that things unfold for us, you know, in slow motion. And that means we, you know, we're, we're less, uh, prolific or less, uh, you know, we just, we just have less stuff coming out. So, so yeah, the, the, the flip side to complete freedom is you can um, squander it and you can become undisciplined and not productive. And so that's been the challenge for me um, over the last decade, you know, balancing the rest of life. And I'm always, the, I'm a perfectionist, so I'm the kind of guy that always wants one more bite at the apple to make that track a little better, that mix a little better, that vocal take or guitar take shine a little bit brighter and so that just takes time and you know if i still had my manager with me he would say it's done we're moving on <laughs> right and uh i don't have that voice right because a deadline makes you assemble i mean you're right and get things done and get, get things, things done. done you deliver you deliver yeah and so we create some of those artificial dead well not artificial we you know we, we try to create some of that structure i do and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, part of the premise of the label I started here in Minneapolis, it's kind of a co-op label with friends, is it's kind of an accountability group as much as anything, where we try to hold each other accountable for finishing up our records and releasing them. And that makes me think that community is also very important for a creative person. Yep, absolutely. And I have it in my band, uh, particularly, well, I was going to say particularly with my drummer because I see him more than anyone, but... But with everybody, I mean, we, we hold, you know, we have that uh, community for creating and community for uh, pushing each other to get things done. And then by extension, the, the other artists on my, my label. And, you know, it's funny. I think that's one thing I never thought about, but it's true of social media, too. It's like when you have fans on Facebook or whatever messaging you or leaving comments like, get with it, guys. I mean, it does push 
not that I want to encourage that kind of thing, but it does push <laughs> us to get get things done. There's a band. I don't want to make assumptions, but I'm assuming that that you, you like the band Ride. I don't think that's a crazy thing to assume. Um, it's not crazy. No, I think we were label mates for a while. Yep. Yeah, I think that's right. So I look at a band like Ride, and I think they didn't put a record out for a really long time, and they finally did, and I thought it was great. Um, but I could hear, David, I could hear time in between those releases. They were a different band, even though it was great. When you look at The Ocean Blue and you see, and you listen to the records and you stack them up, all fabulous. But can you hear the difference in terms of – are you aware of the years between them? I guess what I'm asking is that sort of like the thing that's not present is present. Do you Do you hear – um, the distance of time between those two two records or three records. You know where I hear it the most. I hear it. I hear it um, in my voice. I think my voice is kind of lower. I actually gave gave the new record, or one of the one of the guys we shared the new record with is an artist here in town. He said, "David, you sound like a cross between Ian from the Bunnymen and Frank Sinatra on this record." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought, I thought, wow, that's quite a compliment that's but cool. i think i've become in my older age i'm just a little bit more of a crooner than i was as a teenager like it's, i'm just in a different register because i'm an older guy and i think the other thing our production is a little different too i mean we're not working in big studios with big producers so i think the gloss is a little bit different i actually think our recordings sound great but they're probably more full and big sounding on the last two records than some of our early ones but I mean, that's kind of stuff that I don't think a lot of people pick up on. Um, and I'm happy to be squarely within, you know, the Ocean Blue records. I agree with you. When I heard the new Ride stuff, I thought, this is great. I, it doesn't, it sounds to me different, though. And I think that's that's cool. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's good. But the important thing is, just, is it good or not? I mean, does it, does it sound interesting? Does it sound like a record you want to listen to? I like the idea that you can say this band is still really vital and this is this is a different sound. Whereas, and I don't like to go negative and I'm not trying to go negative, but I just heard the new Pixies song and to me, it feels very self-aware in a way the Pixies never were. Um, mm. you know, it feels like we're really aware that we're adding to this legacy. Whereas with the Ocean Blue or with Ride, it feels like a continuation of a narrative that is not self-aware of that narrative. Interesting. Interesting. I like it. I'll go with it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how do you how do you feel about the Ocean Blue? Do you feel very protective or of the legacy or curatorial? Like, how do you regard the band now at this point in your life? Well, it's 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 important to me. So I think in some ways I'm I'm both. What were your words? Curatorial and what was the other word? Uh, maybe like protective. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean I, I care I care about it. To me, it's not a throwaway thing. To me, it's a living and breathing thing, and it's in, you know, it's so it's like a part of me, and in the guys, and as well as the guys who were part of the band in the early days. I mean, I think so. Yeah, it's important, but it's not like um, it's a living and breathing thing. It's still alive. It's still moving in a direction. So there's, it's it's not like. It's, it's not like uh, it's still moving and changing and growing. Um, so it has a past, it has a present, hopefully a future. 
And um, so as, as long as it's like that, I do feel like there's a certain stewardship aspect, but there's also, it's like, we got to drive this car. We have to take it someplace. Um, but I, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I try not to get too, I can be very analytical like you, it sounds. Um, and I try to keep it, um, I try to think about it more as, or I don't try to think about it too much in that sense, um, more about what, what is the music I'm doing now through the ocean blue um, that will become the ocean blue. And I guess also what I'm, what I'm curious about is, you know, in terms of trying new things sonically with the band um, under the name, the ocean blue, are there some things you go, well, that's not very ocean bluey. We probably shouldn't, maybe we won't, we won't have a flute uh, or, or whatever it might be. Like, do you ever think like, well, sonically that might not be consistent with, I don't want to say the brand, but, but let's just say it because I can't think of another word um, or the aesthetic uh, of what people expect. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I love a lot of different kinds of music beyond the kind of music of the ocean blue or, or what I sometimes call, you know, our DNA. Um, and so, so yeah, I write stuff that does not sound like the ocean blue to me. And so usually I write it and then set it aside. And if I play it for the guys and they're like, Oh yeah, like that. Um, or I'm working on a record and I'm like, no, the record needs a little spice. Uh, then, then maybe I'll try it out. There is a song on the new record that I think really stands out. as something that I'm not so sure would be your standard ocean blue fare that to me just seemed like a, it's the last song on the record. It's just me on a piano with some organ and it's kind of ambient that I think falls into that category. But when I played it for the guys, they're like, no, this is like a great way to close the record. And, and no one's really said that it stands out. So I think sometimes I'm not a very good judge of the brand or the aesthetic. And the other thing that's so true is like the singer defines, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but the majority of that brand. So like if Robert Smith is singing, it's going to be a cheer song. If Ian McCullough is singing, it's going to be an Echo and the Bunnymen song. No matter what the rest of the guys in the band are doing, you're going to be drawn in by that voice. And I'm not trying to say this because I think I'm a, you know, my vocals are that important or whatever, but I just think it's true for any brand that, you know, you're never going to get too far away as long as you have that singer. And were you were you sort of a little bit nervous about that, about that album closer? Were you sort of like, I don't know about this? No, I, I think by the time that we settled on the collection of songs, um, I, I was, I was, I was, it was feeling right to me. Um, you know, the, the other thing we did is we have, we have a song on this record with um, my friends, Charlotte and Allison are singing with me, which is, I mean, that's also kind of a radical departure. I don't think we've ever had a song on one of our records where, where we had um, kind of just vocalists like that. Um, but again, it kind of seemed to fit, well, it certainly worked for that particular song and it, you know, fits the vibe of, of, uh, the record, the song he did. So that was kind of fun. Now, I, I'm just curious about, about these shows that you're going to be doing is that, and, and I, we talked a bit about how you, how you do the touring. 
Um, but I imagine, like, because you're doing so many other things, is it hard to be in one place at, at, at one time? Or do you, are you always thinking about work? And, I mean, how do you turn all that stuff off and, and focus on one thing, like, you know, like touring when you're, when you're away from where you need to be? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm lucky in one sense that what I do as a lawyer, I can do anywhere. So I'm not kind of constrained to a nine to five or eight to six job structure. Um, so I can get things done here and there and anywhere um, for the most part. And like I said, I don't like living a one dimensional life. And so I've, I kind of always live life with lots of different things going on projects. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a good multitasker. Um, but worlds can definitely collide sometimes. And, uh, it, it can be, you know, there are definitely times where it's more difficult. Uh, in terms of, you know, the, the music you're listening to, do you keep up with the bands that you, and I obviously both love when we were, when we were kids, do you keep up with the new work of Mark Burgess or the new echo record, or do you follow that stuff still? Or do you, or, or have you grown out of that? Well, I definitely haven't grown out of it in terms of, um, like, who, like I, I still love echo and the Bunnymen. I will play all their records, you know, and, um, and, and the Smiths and REM, you know, so I, I love all that music always will. What bands are doing now, um, I don't go that hard after it because um, I just, I mean, there aren't a lot of situations where I would naturally hear it. And, you know, I don't have a lot of time. And so I tend to gravitate to what I know. Um, but if someone shares something with me or, you know, I see something on social media, I, I might listen. When Echo and the Bunnymen was here last year in Minneapolis, I went and saw them play. Um, so, but yeah, I hate to say it because this is kind of a, this is a bad, a bad sort of pattern for, for my man, but you know, I, I, I don't, I don't keep up with a lot of what those bands I love are doing now. And there's, a, there's another sense in which I'm also a little afraid to see what they're doing now because I don't want to spoil what I love about them. So I, I don't want to be disappointed with you know, going to see Echo and the Bunnymen because one of the, you know, one of my earliest concert memories is seeing them in all their glory at the University of Pennsylvania, Irvine Auditorium with the church, the most glorious live performance, uh, one of them that I've ever seen. It was awesome. And so I don't want to like take away from that by seeing them in a, something that isn't as cool. Yeah, I, know, I used to watch, like, on PBS sometimes they'd have, like, you know, the 60s. It's like a 10-CD collection, and they show, like, <laughs> you know, like the Turtles uh, or sort of what was left of them uh, just kind of playing a show. And it was really crowded with a lot of people who were who looked like they were about the same age. And I remember thinking, that's so depressing when I was a kid. Like, why are you there? But now I yeah. do get why they're there. I get why. <laughs> you know, I get yeah. it. I'm, I, I, I totally understand that. Yeah, I know. It's I I get it too and in some ways we're entering that season as a band. I I say reluctantly because we do have younger fans. Sometimes they're the kids of our original fans and that's super cool. Um and there's certain parts of the world like South America where 
the demographic is completely different. I mean, and, and generally much younger. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, yeah, I don't know. I'm ambivalent about that. Um, I, I, as long as, as long as it's cool. <laughs> yeah. As long as it's cool. Because, you know, I know, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Aristotle who said this, but something about the idea that you should never admire a man until his life is over. Um, you know, you should never say, Oh, I want to be so-and-so because you, you haven't seen how he's completed his life, um, from any kind of standpoint, but especially morally. And you know, like Morrissey is, was one of my heroes. I, he was all over my bedroom wall and, and I, I don't yeah, know too. if, you, you know what I mean? Like, I think the Smiths just made everything made sense for me. And I look at him now and I'm a bit worried. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, um, yeah, I mean, he's a great case study of maybe not what to do in a lot of respects. And I think Johnny Marr is a case study of maybe what to do. And I, I love the way Johnny um, is his own guy doing his own music, not running away from the Smiths or Morrissey in any way, super proud of that as he should be. Um, and um, not getting too hung up on, you know, what Morrissey does or doesn't do, obviously distancing himself from things that he disagrees with. So, I, I I think I think they're they're an interesting case study, but I'm I am and always will be a fan of the Smiths. I you know even if Morrissey becomes or whatever, I I don't think what he's doing now takes away from what was great about what he did then. Yeah, I um, agree. And I know that I know that's not really your question, but yeah, no, it is. Yeah, but it but it does affect whether I'm going to go see him play live now versus <laughs> going to see Johnny. You know. And, um, <laughs> Or whether I'm going to buy his new record, you know? I agree. And that's that sort of compartmentalizing, you know, a lot of times with uh, the art with the artist. That, that becomes – sometimes that can be trickier than other times. Um, but I, I agree with you, and that's that's really well said. I, I – you know, I'm so pleased that, that you guys have made this record. I'm so excited to um, have a chance to chat with you. I, again, I feel like because we're the same age and we kind of um, – you know, in many ways have a very similar experience with music and how we, what we were listening to as teenagers. Um, I've always felt, I've always felt a real kinship with you um, and your band. And it's, it's cool to chat with you, man. I've, I've always wanted to uh, have a conversation with you. Oh man. Well, thank you, Alex. It's really been a pleasure. Hey, and uh, congratulations on the new album. Thanks a lot. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks buddy. Nice guy, that David Schlissel. Uh, if you are interested in the Ocean Blue, well, just go to theoceanblue.com and uh, all your Ocean Blue questions will be answered. Uh, how deep can a hammerhead shark dive? Uh, that won't be answered on that site. But tour dates, that, that question will be answered. If you're wondering where the Ocean Blue will be playing next, you can find that there. All hammerhead shark questions uh, should be uh, directed to, what, theoceanblue.net? I imagine that uh, you're getting closer. I don't know if that's the case, but try it. What the hell? Now, if you want more information about me, just go to alexgreenonline.com or follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or follow me on Instagram, Embers Podcast. If you're super old-fashioned, go ahead and email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Uh, send what you want, and uh, I will respond, okay? <laughs> Sounds like an invitation to trouble, but I'll give it a shot.
I'm happy to tell you that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available anywhere you get podcasts. Last FM, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, we're everywhere. So, subscribe, leave a nice comment, a couple of stars. I think you know how this thing works. Thank you, as always, for listening to the program. I really appreciate it. I, I can't express to you enough how much it means to me. I am a guy who's expressing himself all the time on the radio, and uh, when it comes to this, you know, words fail me. Uh, just know that I really appreciate it. So thank you again. Uh, let's close things off with another new song from the Ocean Blue. This is a song called Love Doesn't Make It Easy On Us. Enjoy it, and I will see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Love doesn't make it easy on us. Love Doesn't make it easy on us